Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Telling the Story podcast. This is the audio branch of the Telling the Story blog at tellingthestoryblog.com, a look at how journalists and all of us reach the world. I am Matt Pearl, author of the Telling the Story blog and a reporter at NBC in Atlanta. Folks, we have a treat today. My guest for this episode is barely on social media. He doesn't even talk very much, but he has a remarkable story to tell in terms of perseverance and commitment to great journalism. He is just about single-handedly responsible for a new documentary that premiered to rave reviews recently at the Detroit Free Press Film Festival. The documentary is the end result of a four-year project, a project my guest undertook mostly in his spare time. The film is called Packard The Last Shift, and its maker is Emmy Award-winning Detroit Free Press photographer Brian Kaufman. Brian, welcome to the Telling the Story podcast. Thanks, Matt. Glad to be here. Brian, I told you this before we started tonight. I'm going to say it again publicly so you believe me. This film is extraordinary. Packard refers to the famous, no longer functioning Packard plant in Detroit. I live in Atlanta, and it's not famous to anyone here. I knew very little about it, but I watched this from start to finish and was enthralled the whole way. Just to get everybody up to speed, give us the brief synopsis of what this film is all about. Yeah, it's funny you mention that because when I moved to Detroit seven years ago, I didn't even know what Packard was. Packard's a car that our grandparents probably knew, but um, a lot of us, the younger generation, has kind of lost touch. So I went there. I went to the Packard plant shortly after I moved up here and was really blown away by the place. It was so big, three and a half million square feet of just abandonment and thought there had to be a story there. And so I started diving into it. And, uh, you know, the film starts with an intro with a poem. We can talk about that later. But we basically go through the entire history of the car company, its roots in Ohio, its growth in Detroit starting in 1903. And it boomed into one of the, the biggest and most productive auto factories in the world by 2000, or I mean, by 1950s, it was, it was the biggest. And they were producing luxury automobiles and then, like uh, Detroit's history, after World War II, things started to decline. We lost a lot of jobs, and industry went downhill, and the Packard plant folded, and the story goes on from there. The plant uh, just seems like such an icon, and as I was watching your documentary, I thought about, uh, it reminded me of back in 2008 when the recession had just hit, the auto industry was in deep trouble, and there was a controversy that developed in the journalism world where Detroit officials were claiming that national journalists would come in and only take photos of poor-looking buildings that would fit their narrative, iconically bad-looking buildings. And I thought of that because watching your documentary and seeing the shots of the Packard plant, that's not just a poor-looking building. That is an iconically poor-looking building. Yeah, and it's, it's funny you mentioned that. It still happens. It happens. It's happened recently, actually. There was some union talks going on with Volkswagen, and they were using shots of the Packard plant, like, do you want this to happen to your auto factory? Oh, my goodness. Which has nothing to do with unions currently. <laughs> I mean, this place closed in 1956. And so you still have people um, using it for whatever their means are, and a lot of times it's misrepresented. But it is a hulking mess. Like you said, it looks like a bomb went off, multiple bombs. <laughs> and you said, uh, and you show in the film how so many artists are now using it just as a, as a cool specimen, a cool background for whatever they happen to be doing. So it, it just has become, it has taken on a life of its own, and that's really what you capture in this documentary. And 
you know, we'll, we'll geek out on the technical stuff in a little bit from a storytelling standpoint, and especially from a photographic standpoint, this is immaculate work. But I wanted to have you on the podcast really to talk about the journey of this project because I think it's such a great lesson for journalists out there. Take me through, in as brief a synopsis as you can, how this, how this went from start to finish in four years and you basically being the single-handed thrust pushing this thing forward. Well, that's the interesting thing about working in newspapers, at least at the free press right now. Um, you know, we don't have huge teams working on any project, really. We're, I'm on the photography department, and there's a few of us that shoot video and produce video. But it's a lot of kind of one-man band type of stuff, similar to what you do. And so when I went there for the first time in 2008, shortly after I moved up here, um, I was just blown away by the place. You know, I grew up in Southern California, and there's nothing like this remotely close to it. And so I was fascinated, and my first thought was, I can't believe nobody's done a bigger story on this place. There has to be a better story here. And I, the interest was almost immediate. Now, it took about a year and a half, and my boss approached me and said, hey, we want to do a little story about the Packard plant. You want to go there and film? So I said, sure. And um, <laughs> like a lot of things in newspapers, the story ended up getting pushed back and pushed back, and I just kept going back. And over the course of um, a few months, this started in 2010 in the fall, I just started shooting footage. And when I knew that the story was really going to be pushed back because of other projects, I just kept going back. I wanted to capture every season of the place, see how weather changed, what people were visiting at what times of the year, and just get a really good base batch of footage. And so the first year was really just about shooting cinematography. Now, at this point, there's no promise of a documentary. There's no promise of anything beyond the one story. And you've only been at the Free Press for a year and a half, two years at this point. What compelled you to go out there and shoot this video as if it could be something bigger? Well, I mean, I think it just comes down to love for cinematography. And I started shooting, it was really kind of at the time when I started making the switch from traditional video cameras to SLR style still photography cameras that shot video, HD video. And for me, especially coming from the photography world, I had all these lenses now, opportunities that I never had before. And one of my favorite tools became the macro lens. So you can focus on things within like an inch and you can find the details. And, and so I started going there, not really looking for the big wide shots, even though those came, they came a lot, but that's what everybody shoots there. I tried to find the real small details of the place that stood out. And I just had fun just shooting and in a lot of ways, the Packer plant is so remote and empty that a lot of times you could spend hours there and not run into anybody. And there's wildlife, there's birds on the roof, there's trees growing out of the building. And it kind of, you know, coming from, I grew up in the mountains, it kind of felt like almost a return to nature in some ways. <laughs> so I kind of went there for personal reasons as well when I started. I understand. Yeah. When, uh, when did the idea of a documentary seem possible in your mind? And then how did you convince your employers at the Detroit Free Press to jump on board? Well, we did, um, this would have been in 2012. The newspaper ended up putting together a big package on the Packard plant, kind of where it stood at that time. And it was a special, spe special section in the newspaper. And for that, I put together the six and a half minute you know, short video that's actually online now that anybody can see. And I had a lot more footage to, to show and a lot more 
uh, story to tell, but we didn't have time given the newspaper's deadline to do it then. And so I kind of just put it on hold and figured I'd get back to it in the coming year. And the coming year came and things really started ramping up. The place was sold. I got interviews that I never thought I would get. And it just took on this, this life of its own. And I was really busy in 2013, just catching up and making sure that I had everything I needed. And I don't know when the actual idea to do a full-length documentary kind of arose. I guess it kind of arose naturally. It could have been, you know, originally intended as maybe a 35, 40-minute video, which would have been fine. But all the recent news and the purchase of the place and stuff, it's really it took on a life of its own in 2013. And you were saying uh, before we started the podcast how some of the major interviews in the documentary came about within the last few months. So really, so much of this was done under the gun after all those years you had spent <laughs> compiling all that video. I have to ask you, you know, I, I and, and I've known you for about a year now, and when we first met, you had talked about this project that you had worked on, not that you were continuing to work on. And it seemed like it would, and, and you showed me the six and a half minute video that you referenced, and it was beautiful, it was spectacular. But my impression from you is that that was the end project, and there really wasn't going to be much beyond that. What was the thinking on your end in terms of wanting to do more with this? Was it because of the aesthetic value that you found in the Packard plant? Was it because of the melding of that with? the new news that was coming out? Was it kind of a confluence of many factors? What allowed you mentally and maybe your bosses as well to take that next step? Yeah, I think one of the things that we haven't mentioned, probably the most important thing was my boss came to me and said, we've been trying to do this documentary film festival, the Freak Film Festival. And they'd been working on it for a couple of years. They finally got it approved and they were going to do it in 2014 in March. And so she came to me and said, let's show Packard, let's get it done, and let's make it like the opening night film. Which for me, you know, finally, (laughs) coming from an age where all of our video ends up online and it's, you know, 600 pixels wide and it's pixelated, I thought, wow, this is, you know, this is great. Finally seeing something on a big screen. So I guess that gave me the push to really do as much as I could with it and make it shine. So that was a big factor. And, you know, I knew that there was story there. I knew that there was more to be told than six and a half minutes. And so it was just finding a way to stitch all the components together. It's so rare to, I think, in any journalistic field to get the opportunity to really go long with a project. I mean, you know, and and speaking as someone who works in TV, and if we get more than 90 seconds, that is precious cargo that Mm -hmm. we now have to work with. You got six and a half minutes for the initial video, and, and that's largely because the video was for online. So there really, you could really play around with time uh, however you wanted. Now you get to the point where, you know, you've been doing this behind the scenes in your own or on your own in your spare time for three years. Now, finally, you really got to commit some of your work hours to it as well. I would imagine that in those earlier years, it really did need to be a labor of love for you to keep going back there, keep getting that video, not knowing what would come of it. Yeah. And the labor of love was really just making myself get up like at five in the morning, but I knew it was going to be good light or going out That would out be the, the labor part of it. Yeah. Going out in the <laughs> middle of winter, you know, when it's 10 below 
that took, um, you know, you have to force yourself to do those things. But my bosses were always great about giving me the time. And it wasn't always like a full day, but an hour here, an hour there. We worked with my schedule. And uh, I think, you know, I give them credit for freeing me up and seeing the opportunity uh, of what it could be. And, you know, the newspaper, nobody ever thought that, you know, 10 years ago, any newspaper doing, you know, a feature length film is just unheard of. And so it's, you know, it, I think it speaks to how far we've come. And, and I'm glad that uh, my editors and the editors at the newspaper recognize that this could be important for our future, that we have to start moving beyond what we consider traditional newspaper work. Um, there's so many other questions that I could ask you about this part of the story, but I, I do want to get to the more technical elements of it and, and also talk a little bit about your career as a whole. So my final question on this portion of the podcast, what is the lesson on a more universal less, uh, on a more universal level that you take from this whole experience? Is it, is it about individual perseverance? Is it about the future of the business? What do you think, and for our listeners here on the podcast, what do you think is the big takeaway from this experience? Yeah, for me personally, I think it's, it's kind of looking at documentary in a different way than traditional documentaries might have looked at it. You know, we're not working with traditional roles. There was no set, you know, there was no director separated from a cinematographer, separated from an editor. It was myself and my boss and, you know, a few coworkers. And I think working in this team format, this small team format, is actually beneficial in a lot of ways if you can do all these jobs because you have complete control. And it makes sense as the cinematographer to be the editor or as the editor to be the cinematographer and just take your vision through from start to finish. And I think that's kind of, you know, that's always the model I've worked in. And I think that's probably going to become more commonplace in the years to come rather than the traditional documentary crew setup or film crew setup. You've got to be tremendously proud of what you've accomplished here. Yeah, it's it, you know, seeing it on the screen, I was terrified during the festival that it was just going to explode on screen. I was like, <laughs> like, literally, I had like one foot out the door ready to make a beeline if it exploded. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was seeing it on the screen was was great. And we, we almost filled the theater up and you know, over a thousand tickets were sold. And, and that's great. I mean, that's that's an audience you can't reach uh, or you don't see online. People might work, watch your work online, but to see people's faces there and to see them reacting um, it was pretty special. So they're going to do the film festival again next year. So might have a lot of work ahead of me again. <laughs> this is the Telling the Story podcast. I am Matt Pearl. He is Brian Kaufman, Emmy Award-winning photographer and videographer for the Detroit Free Press, documentarian and creator of the new film Packard, The Last Shift. Okay, Brian, let's talk about the technical side of this. Your work as a video journalist is so strong, and I know you have a penchant for stories that are aesthetically beautiful. You've talked about how you were drawn to the Packard plant because of what you thought you could do with it visually. What did you think you could do with it visually when you first started going? Yeah, well, at first it's overwhelming because it's so big. And so the first tendency is just to put on a wide-angle lens and just shoot as much as you can. And then you realize after the first couple of days that all your shots look really similar. (laughs) (laughs) And so for me, the challenge was to look at the details and as I mentioned earlier, I used this, this 100 millimeter macro lens as my main tool and just walked around the place and looked for these details that could be really easily overlooked. 
And if I wasn't flying anything, I, you know, I just sit down someplace and look around me and you start to see these, you know, little pieces of probably not Packard cars or Packard factory, but pieces of industry left over and going there during different weather patterns and seeing ice grow inside the building, seeing flowers and mushrooms pop up out of the old wooden floors and hunting for that type of stuff. And I never went there with a purpose, really, because the place is so big. If you go there looking for something, you probably won't find it. I just went there looking for something. And I always found something, but I never went there with a specific shot in mind, which was kind of nice. How important, you know, we, we talk in journalism all the time about how none of us have enough time to do the complete work that we want to do. How much... Or how important was it for you just to simply have the time to stand there, to look around, to do things other than work with your camera and physically shoot? Yeah, you have to have the time. I mean, that's that's a given. And there's only so much time to be had when you're, especially in like, you know, newspaper, television news situations where a lot of people have to be doing breaking news type of work. And we certainly did a lot of that. I mean, throughout all of this, you know, I... I'd go for weeks without going to the Packard plant because the news cycle was heavy and I was out on a daily workload. And so when I did have those times, I'd try to make the most of it. And, you know, I, I really planned it around the weather and, uh, and just made the time for myself. And a lot of that had to be getting up earlier, going late, and, and just finding the, those time slots that worked. You had some beautiful, beautiful shots in this documentary and such crispness, sharpness in the color uh, you know, I can recall a couple of time lapses back to back where you just show the clouds crossing atop the, the plant and it's stunning. How much of that is the camera? How much of that is your eye? How much of that uh, involves techniques that you're using to maximize what you've got? Some of it's the camera. I mean, these DSLR cameras are fantastic. I mean, the, the image quality is, is phenomenal and the lens choices, if you have great lenses and the free press has this great stock lenses because we're a newspaper. So, um, part of it is, part of it is definitely the camera. Part of it is, um, in post-production, you know, a lot of work goes into the editing and after everything's done, I had to sit down for three days straight, like 20 hours each day. And I just color corrected the whole film. And it was literally going shot by shot and adjusting the contrast and the color um, and, and just trying to make it all look really beautiful. I think one of the stories I'm most proud of having done was uh, about an eight and a half minute segment on the death of JFK for the civil rights documentary we, we did uh, last August. And that one I had a, an extra day to play with towards the end and we had so much old footage from the 60s, from different sources. And I went through with a terrific photographer at NBC News, and we did the same thing. And we had to color correct it, almost color match, mm -hmm. so that all this old grainy footage had some semblance of continuity. And looking back after the fact, that was one of the greatest things that I did because it's imperceptible for someone who doesn't know what's been done. But it just allows you to have a flow... And more importantly, it prevents breaks in that flow. It prevents a jarring change in color balance where someone might not realize it, but they'll subconsciously know that, oh, well, something 
has broken me out of this. You're right. I totally agree with you. Yeah. And a lot of it was like we had all these old historical photos too. And so I played around with um, – I actually added some sepia tone into them because a lot of the historical photographs I had to make copies of. I had to photograph the photographs literally at the Detroit Public Library. And so then I have all these photographs. I got to bring them into Photoshop. I have to crop them right. But the color is a little off, you know, if there's a, you know, the light changes and you have some fluorescent green. So I took it all black and white and then played with adding some sepia in. And, and once I did that, it just, to me, it looks like night and day. You're right. Mm-hmm. To some people, you may not notice a difference, but once you see it all color corrected, you just, it's, it is night and day. Did that show up especially on the big screen? Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad I did all that stuff because it's one thing looking at a, it's one thing looking at a small, you know, four inch uh, preview of the video on your, your small laptop. It's another thing to see it gigantic on the screen and every, every mistake is amplified. (laughs) Here's the, the big question I think everybody has about documentaries. So your documentary is 70 minutes long. How much footage did you shoot? Oh man, that's a good question. And I haven't tabulated it, but it was a lot. (laughs) a lot more than 70 minutes for sure and a lot of it was a lot of it was deciding what to cut and some in any documentary process you have to make some hard decisions and a lot of it happened last minute I mean three weeks out I had people come in who had never seen it who had no idea what it was about and I just had said watch this and they'd say you know this doesn't make sense why you know why this why here and we'd look at the script and see you know you're right this isn't essential to the story, and I had it in because I may have liked the shot or the footage, but if it's not essential to the story, sometimes you got to cut it. And so you do have to make decisions about what to cut, and there was a lot of great footage that just didn't make it. I think one question that I'm sure a lot of journalists would have, especially those who you know, generally work in the day-to-day grind, as you typically do, and then have these side projects that they're trying to cultivate and turn into something great. You mentioned how you would go weeks, months without uh, in-between visits to the Packard plant. How were you able to keep a continuity in terms of storytelling between visits, between, especially between edit sessions when you started sitting down and trying to put this thing into a 70-minute monstrosity? Mm-hmm. How were you able to leave the computer come back and still know what you wanted to do and be able to pick up right where you left off? Well, it it can be maddening. You know, I I was really frustrated at some points of this process because I did take so much time away that I did come back and like, Oh man, what am I doing here? Like, do I even want to do this anymore? (laughs) Yeah, I did. (laughs) I did. You did. (laughs) So I kept going. And, um, I think it's, for me, it was always starting with a script. Um, Anything in, in my mind, anything over about three minutes for me personally, I have to script out because it gets to the point where I just can't lay it all out on a timeline and make sense of it. And so every interview I transcribed, anything with written words or spoken words, I transcribed onto, onto paper, onto Word doc. And I had everything in Word format. And I started with a script and I started really broad. You know, what's the biggest, what are the broadest ideas that I want to say with this film? And what are the biggest chapters? You know, I have history here. I have the 1990 section with a battle over ownership. I have tourism. I have art. I have, you know, the new ownership issues. And how do these all fit together? So I'd start with a script, really broad. And then out of those broad areas, I'd move quotes and whatever material I had into those. And I'd just start whittling it down until it, 
into a more you know fine-tuned process until eventually you had something that was way too long, but it was a structure. And once it was way too long, I could figure out you know what was repetition within each section. I just start cutting from there. Yeah. But it, it really comes down to scripting more than anything. You uh, again, you work, do a lot of day-to-day assignments and and day of turns. What was the biggest change in your approach in terms of dealing with a long-form project? You know, a lot of it was, um, uh, from my end, was really, you know, diving into research more heavily than I typically would on a daily, you know, story. And a lot of it was diving into that historical research and and really trying to find the the footage and the photos that best told the story. Because... Yeah, you could find a handful of Packard photos from the 1920s, but are they the best? You know, what other areas can, what other library libraries or people can you ask for photos that might be better? And so it was trying to really find the best of what's out there rather than just, you know, oh, that works. Let's do it. Let's get it in because it's breaking news and we got to get this on air, you know, in an hour or something. Yeah. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I am Matt Pearl. He is Brian Kaufman photographer, videographer, and now filmmaker with the Detroit Free Press. Brian, I like to reserve this final section of the podcast to talk about my guest's journey as a journalist, and not only that, but your advice for young journalists. What we haven't discussed yet, really, is how you work as a videographer for a newspaper, and what a unique position you find yourself in. So, you know, I know some of your background, but for the folks listening on the podcast, how did you develop behind the camera, and how did you wind up in such a unique position? I went to school at uh, Brooks Institute of Photography, a small college out in California. And uh, it was expensive, but it, was, you know, it was a, had a reputation for being a good school. And I just figured if I'm going to do it, I might as well do it right. And I went through their visual journalism program, which at the time was a combination of photojournalism and video journalism. And it was kind of unique at that time. It was, this was 2004, 2005. Video journalism, really, at newspapers especially, wasn't really a thing yet. And so the, the curriculum was cutting edge, and I fell in love with video right off the bat. I had a couple great instructors who were kind of mentors, and I saw the storytelling potential right away and just decided to kind of go with that. Mm. And my first job was at the Naples Daily News right out of college. They were trying to start their own kind of cable newscast at the time, and they did successfully. And I was there for about a year and then made my way up to the free press uh, to do video work for them. And so it was just kind of this path that I never imagined I would have ended up in a newspaper. And if I was, I never would have imagined myself doing this long-form format, which is always what I want to do. So if it's a newspaper, well, that's great. <laughs> my, uh, my last podcast, I interviewed Michael Driver. He's 31 years old and just won the MPPA's honor for West Top Regional Photographer of the Year. How old are you, Brian? Uh, 31 also. You are also 31, yep. and you're one of the finest videographers, I would say, in the business. What enabled you to develop as quickly as you did? I think a lot of it goes back to the DSLR camera that I was talking about. I shot on, on standard three-chip video cameras for many years in college and right out of college, and actually, as a cinematographer, I got bored with those cameras because they do have limited depth of field. Um, you know, the focal length range is pretty good, but you can't go super, super wide. You can't focus really, really tight on things. 
And so once I made that switch, and these DSLR cameras, especially back in 2009, they had some major issues. They still do with audio and everything else. But visually, there was opportunity there that I'd never had. Mm. And so I just embraced it. And I take out like, I just get crazy. I go find the longest possible lens that the free press had, which is 600. And I put a 2X converter on it and, and try to shoot something with it. And if there's any wind at all, the thing just wobbles and vibrates like crazy. But I just tried to start shooting with as many different lenses as possible and just expanding what I had previously thought of as kind of the limits of my cinematography. You've mentioned that a couple of times about the lenses at the free press. And I would have to imagine that's got to be an advantage of doing video at a newspaper as opposed to at a TV station. I mean, we don't, you know, I think some of the more experienced veteran photographers might have two lenses that they use. But for the most part, we're only using one, whereas you seem to have a whole playground's worth. Yeah, and some of them have very specific uses, um, and some of them are beat up. You know, newspaper lenses <laughs> take a beating. My wide-angle lens right now has a huge dent in it, and the bottom right corner of the frame, if you look closely, there's a little shadow, and that's because the <laughs> lens is dented. <laughs> so it's not all it's not all brand-new stuff, but the opportunities are there. And, you know, most of these cameras now have video capabilities, so anybody in a newspaper can take the longest sports lens they have put a 2X converter on it and get it on a solid tripod. And at that point, your, your frame, you're looking like a half mile down the horizon. It's just it's incredibly long. And uh, it gives you opportunities that you just didn't have before, mm. especially for that price range. What do you tell young photographers? And I would imagine you're starting to get asked that question a lot by young photographers because you're establishing such a great reputation within the industry. But I'll just say anecdotally, it seems like more so than when I started in the business 11 years ago and, and right around when you were starting as well, it seems like there's just more room in the industry now for young journalists to thrive only behind the camera. You don't have to do it all to, be, to have a successful career. Uh, and you know, the more I spend time in, in Atlanta and follow my friends from my previous, uh, previous station in Buffalo – there just does seem to be a nice influx of young photographers coming up right now. And I have to say it's a pleasant surprise from where I stand. I'm curious as to how you view the landscape. Yeah, I, I think you're right. There's more people than ever that are interested in it. I think that traditional jobs are kind of disappearing, especially from newspapers, those traditional photojournalism jobs. And I think, you know, we'll continue to see a, a shift towards freelance but I think if, if, if you're a solid shooter and, and you can also tell a story, and that's important, you have to be able to edit your stories as well and tell that story, um, you can find work. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you're right. The opportunity is ripe. And I think the difference is you can't just you know, be solely focused on like, the shooting end of it, the cinematography. I really think you need to have some story uh, background and be able to kind of edit and formulate story as well. And and a solid grasp of, of uh, reporting uh, expertise helps too. And I, I never had that. You know, it's, it's one great thing about working for the free press is that we're surrounded by terrific reporters and writers. And so I've had a lot of help and guidance uh, on that end as well. Do you, uh, you know, I, you went to a school specifically for photography. Do you recommend folks do that or do you recommend they get more of a, a, an overall journalism education? so that they can have that versatility. Yeah, I think the best schools right now are offering both. And I think you're really starting to see some, some change-ups in curriculum. And, 
and uh, programs that do offer kind of a rounded view of it. At some point, you do have to kind of pick what area you want to really specialize in. I still think, you know, the greatest reporters are going to be great reporters. The greatest editors might just be great editors. So it's not like you can just be absolutely terrific at absolutely everything. Um, But having kind of a well-rounded approach is more important than picking, you know, just say, I'm just going to be a photographer. That's all I'm interested in. Yeah. And I wanted to talk to you, too, about just the importance of loving what you do. I think in the brief time that I've known you, that has been evident every time I've interacted with you. You just have such a passion for this. And I think it's safe to say that without that passion for a span of four years, this Packard film never would have gotten made. So I'm just curious as to how much that has allowed you to thrive and how much you try to impart that on people who ask your advice. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it is fun what we do. Much more fun than a lot of jobs out there. And I got to keep telling myself that. It's easy to get frustrated um, throughout this process and thinking that it's not going to happen or it's not going to happen the way you want it to. But at the end of the day, we still have some pretty fun jobs. And so I try to remember that. And it does come down to, I mean, you have to like what you're doing. And and cinematography and even just shooting still photos is is always been a passion for me. And I, you know, if I'm not shooting at the free press, I'm out on vacation, I'm shooting photos, um, you know, stuff that I'll probably never publish, but just, you know, fun things. I spent the last four years of my life photographing ice on the single pane windows in my house with this macro <laughs> lens. And I just, I quit doing it this year because we had a great cold winter. I said, yeah, this is enough. But I just, I just put together all these photos, and there's like 300 really interesting, unique photos. Who knows where, if I'll do anything with it. But, I was uh, say, where's that documentary? <laughs> I don't know. But it's just, um, you know, it's, it's just keeping your, your eye sharp, I guess. And yeah, you have to love what you do, for sure. Brian, this has been great. I, I always like to end with that famous reporter's question. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you wanted to add? Well, not necessarily. The most... You know, one of the most fascinating parts about this process for us is the ongoing part about now what do we do with this film? Um, so we're kind of in new territory here for even for ourselves, venturing into the documentary film world and looking at uh, film festivals and, and contests and trying to find wade our way through this stuff. And so it's a learning process for us. And I think it just it speaks to kind of the diversity of the changing media landscape. Yeah, you're hosting this. Uh, film festival annually now does that mean that you brian kaufman are going to be responsible for a documentary every year i don't know the free press is definitely gonna want to be responsible for that content um we you know we've been talking about some upcoming projects and i guess see how they pan out but we're talking about one year from now so (laughs) not as much time as you think right That is Brian Kaufman, the one-man show behind the remarkable new documentary, Packard, The Last Shift. Uh, Brian, I know this premiered in Detroit. You snuck me an advanced copy online, and we'll link to the trailer on on the blog. When does the rest of the world get to see this thing? I don't know. A lot of people have asked, and, uh, you know, I'd like to say, yeah, let's just show it again in Detroit. There's a lot of interest. Let's get it into a theater. Uh, But back to, you know, this process of the film world, you know, really one of our goals right now is to get it into the festival circuit and look for ways from there then to find distribution, either through broadcast or some other means. Um, I'd love to just put it out for everybody to see, but at the same time, you got to kind of be smart about how you approach it. So we don't know yet for future showings, but there definitely will be. I know that much. 
Well, again, I want to congratulate you, and I wish you the best of luck with this. And in the meantime, you can find Brian on Twitter at, at @bkjournalism. He has tweeted 11 times so far in roughly uh, more than a year, but you're getting the hang of that too, I think. Yeah, I need to, I need to boost it up. <laughs> All right, Brian. Well, terrific stuff. Thank you so much for joining me, and we'll talk soon. Thanks, Matt. All right. The Telling the Story blog updates every Monday and Wednesday. The website is tellingthestoryblog.com. Rate and review this podcast on iTunes. And thanks for listening to this episode of the Telling the Story podcast. We'll see you next time.